Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Hey everyone, welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I am so excited to be here with Julie Hubschman, who is the Developer Relations Lead for Gusto Embedded. How's it going today? It's going pretty well. How about you? Pretty good. Excited to be talking to you. Yeah, Um, I think we're going to have a good convo. I think so too. So I always like to start with my guests all the way back at the beginning. I love to hear how people first got started in computer science and programming. So what was your origin story? Yeah, so... We can take it back even farther than just me. My dad actually worked at Microsoft in the 80s and 90s. So I always grew up with a computer. And my mom was a biostatistician who like would program computers and crash them for a living. So it was kind of always around me. But I always swore that I was never going to go into computers because I was like, my dad's in it. I'm not going to even touch that. Right. And then in high school, I started going to summer camps, nerd camps, and I did a robotics one. And then there was a robotics team at my high school and they had me join it. And then my teacher threw like a pamphlet on my desk and said, you should apply for this women in tech award. And I did. And I won it for the state of Georgia very unexpectedly. Then I went to college and I was like, I'll take a computer science class. And then it kind of like fell. I like fell into it very unexpectedly. That's pretty funny. What was first robotics, the robotics competition you did? It was Vex Robotics, actually. Oh, they kind of merged with first at some point, right? I think they were like next to each other almost. So Vex was pre-built items, right? While first was more like build whatever you want. And Vex was these really small courses that were maybe like 12 by 12. And first was the size of a basketball court. So it was like the smaller version. That's really cool. Interesting. (laughs) So the kinds of computers you had growing up, were you playing around with them a lot? Were you trying to build stuff on them? I was a paint girl through and through. I loved paint. I loved all that sort of stuff. I loved just making stuff on the computer. I'm a very creatively driven person. So being able to edit photos and do all those different things really scratched an itch. And then of course, there was MySpace and Tumblr and all those different things that I think you ask anyone of the late 80s, early 90s, they're going to be like MySpace and Tumblr <laughs> kind of help shift that and the ability to change things as you saw it, right? And create whatever was in your head. And I was not a good artist or drawer, so I could make it on a computer. That's really cool. It's funny, like, I know you're familiar with hackathons and I've been to quite mm-hmm. a few. One of the side activities that happens at a lot of hackathons these days is called Basically, it's like Bob Ross paint along, but people have to use MS paint. And I don't think that's like a common thing people use anymore, but it's kind of incredible watching all of these people who are in computer science programs now with actual modern technologies, you know, trying to do some weird stuff in MS paint. I kind of like it. There's some guy, there's like this one guy, I'd have to look up his name, that's really famous that like makes beautiful art in MS paint. And like, man, if only I had the patience. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Cool. So you kind of got hooked in through robotics in school. 
I know that you didn't go to like a traditional MIT Stanford type of computer science school, right? Like you went to a small liberal arts college. Yeah, I went to a school that was 1,200 students. And it's famous because it has a requirement to study abroad huh. and has a D1 equestrian team. And it also has a dance major without having a dance consortium. I huh. did only the study abroad part. So really chose it for what it was. Yep. Did but they yeah. have a computer science program formally? Yeah. So they did have a computer science program formally. It was combined with the math program. But I went there because when I was looking at schools in 2011, 2012, I was really interested in cognitive science, yeah. which now every school offers cognitive science. But in 2011, 2012, there were maybe 15 schools that offered it. And then my other caveat of that was I played the saxophone and I wanted to keep playing. And so I had to go somewhere where that had a music program where you didn't have to be a music major. So wow. that's really cool. I, two weird caveats that I had to look for. I mean, that's what it's like when you're going to school, right? Everyone has different things they're looking for. And it seems like there's a lot of options. Yeah. I mean, I think what we'll get into even more, go to the school that makes you happy and does the other things you want because the education is only one part of it. But yeah, so I went for cognitive science, which was an interdisciplinary major. And I was, ah, I'll take a computer science course. You know, I have to fill this requirement. And then I was, I could add this and then make my major human computer interaction. And so I kind of shifted it from there because I really enjoyed how people interact with technology. I found really fascinating. Yeah. So it's a very like humanistic approach to tech, right? It's not just here's how algorithms work. How has that shaped how you think about building technology, right? Like, we can understand something at an academic level. But I'm yeah. curious how it comes into practice. Yeah, I mean, I think I often take an outside in approach when it comes to a lot of technology, even when I was just like a pure developer. And for some, that was really off-putting when I was just a pure software engineer. Well, why like, is that? I think because they're just like, just code it, just do it. And in my mind, I'm like, but what, how is it going to be used, right? Like, that's my first question. My first question is, well, how will it be functioning? Because that can change how you build it, right? In my mind. And I think a lot of people, or what I've learned is a lot of people don't think that way. They just go, let's build it and it will just work with whatever we have. So I think I often take a outside in approach than an inside out approach. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Have you found you know, as you've kind of advanced in your career, that that's provided benefits? What has that gained you? Yeah, I think it gains a lot. Well, now that I'm in developer relations, I think that's kind of the bread and butter of developer relations, right? Is that outside in approach to thinking. I also think it helps with being able to empathize with customers and partners. You're able to kind of see it from their side a little bit more and be like, are we building this right? And kind of asking more of the uncomfortable questions. I remember when I worked at Microsoft, I worked on a prototyping and incubation team and I loved it and I hated it all at the same time because I loved it because it was the HoloLens and all these other really cool technologies. But I hated it because engineers would pitch things that sounded like they were straight out of Black Mirror. And I was, do you even recognize what you're saying? And they'd be like, huh, I guess so. I didn't think about it that way. And I'd be like, how do these people like build things? That's really, really interesting to me because I, I mean, I don't know, if you follow tech news, you hear about all of these things that got built 
And certainly like many of them give you pause where you're like, why would a like rational like person build this? And I'm kind of like an optimist. Like I like to believe the best in people. And so I generally don't assume malicious intent, but I do think there's a lot of perhaps not considering the ramifications of things that you build where it's not malice, but maybe it's naivete. I don't know. Right. Yeah. What do you think? I think that's exactly what it is. I think, and I would love to know more about like how you think your background helps you because you also told me yours is liberal arts. So I want to know about that. But I think a lot of it does come from my education and those different sorts of things and learning to like think about things differently. Right. It's not a let's just build it and someone will like it. It's what does this mean for humanity? Right. It's very interesting to talk to people who get worried about AI and all those things and all these different areas with privacy and all that. And you kind of have to say, you know, yes, it can collect this data, but they're not doing anything malicious with it. But that doesn't mean they can't. Right. And kind of setting that line, because could you build it non-maliciously to start? Probably. But that wasn't how it was built. So you just have to hope that there's someone really good with the the lever. Yeah. And I think that a lot of this tech is interesting to build, right? Like as an engineer, doing stuff with a lot of data is really interesting conceptually. And I think a lot of the stuff that becomes problematic over time often happens like gradually, right? It may not be that first prototype or release. It may be something where like, okay, you're comfortable with this now. So we push it a little bit further and you keep building on that until people reach a point where they're like, oh no, like how did we get here? Yeah, I remember I was working on a project and sorry if there's sirens, the joy of New York City, that was tracking of people and sentiment and all that stuff. And one of the ideas that came out of it was someone was like, we could put that in a prison. And I was like, oh, no, oh, no, not let's not like take it to like the worst possible place. But that was what someone's first thought was. And I was like, they weren't wrong, but it wasn't quite where my mind went for like a good application. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, yeah, you asked about my liberal arts background. I actually have a history degree, so I didn't even end up getting a computer science degree. And, you know, it's not often that people in tech are that interested in like weird historical facts. But I do think that you sort of learn like a way of thinking about the world and analyzing what's going on that comes into handy a lot. I don't even remember that many historical facts, but that wasn't really what we studied. You know, like really what we studied was you read a firsthand account and you kind of try and make sense of it and interpret it. And that does come into handy, especially in tech where you do have to read between the lines quite a bit to see what's actually going on. Yeah. And I I have found that to come in handy. Yeah. I always think back to the story because when you reached out to me first and I was like, oh, we should talk about education and stuff. It reminded me of the story when I was looking at colleges. I went to Georgia Tech. I'm originally from Atlanta. And so my mom was like, yeah, go to the in-state school. It's way cheaper. Like, please do it. Right. And I was interested in cognitive science. So in Georgia Tech, had this graduate program where they would let a few undergrads in. And I went and toured it and I sat down with the head of the department at the time. And he's like, so where are you looking? And I told him, I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of between these liberal arts or these like RPI and Georgia Tech, these like two very different styles of school. And this man, a head of a department at Georgia Tech looked at me and went, yeah, go to the liberal arts school. And my mom put her hands, you know, in her face. And she's like, I can't believe he just said that, right? Because she was really booking on it. And he was like, 
I can teach you how to code. I can't teach you how to think. He goes, I need you to be able to think. I need you to be able to write. And I need you to be able to read. He goes, I cannot teach you that. But teaching you to code, absolutely any day of the week. And he was like, in three years, if you want a master's degree, sure. He goes, but right now, don't come here. He goes, because you won't be my best student. Interesting. Do you think that that's, I mean, really interesting advice in how unself-serving it is, right? But yeah. do you think that's something that like more programs are missing? We work with a lot of students and many of them are incredibly culturally and ethically aware, but that doesn't yeah. necessarily mean that's part of their curriculum. Right. I think a lot of people ask when they hear that I go to a liberal arts school and that I'm in tech, they're like, what do tech people not know? And I'm like, how to write? No one knows how to write. And I think that's a bit of an overgeneralization, but I think I had to take an entire year of writing classes to just graduate, right? There were minimum requirements. I had to take a class in all these different sort of areas to build out. And I was writing essays until the day I graduated college. I was writing like five, 10 page essays, right? And thankfully I don't have to do that anymore, but I think it helped me be able to get my point across when I do have to write now, even if it's about something technical, you know? It's still the same concepts in the end. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You just reminded me of, obviously, we had to write a lot in history, but my first full-time job, I was a developer evangelist at Twilio. And my boss was this guy, Rob Spector, who, aside from being like a force of nature kind of personality, he had studied English in college. And I always thought that I was like a pretty decent writer. And then when I started writing and he started editing it, it was just this totally different world and perspective of drastic improvement. And I feel like that's most engineers never get that in a traditional engineering job. And, you know, they could be fantastic engineers and human beings, but it's a different muscle. Yeah, it's a completely different muscle. And I think I joke with some of the younger engineers and I go, if you ever want to continue coding, don't go into leadership because all you're going to do is sit in meetings and write papers. I don't think the senior engineers ever get to code anymore. I think all they do is write product designs and sit in a meeting and then they have to explain it to everyone. And that's a whole different skill than being able to code. Yeah, That's like how to win over an audience. And if you think you're going to win over an audience of non-technical people with technical talk, it's just going to go right over their head. Do you think that's a flaw in the system that is the typical career path? I don't know. I think it's growth. And I think a lot of people look for growth in whatever they do, right? You don't want someone to be in a role where they're not challenged ever. So you would want them to have some sort of challenge. But I mean, I know people that went from being managers and then went back to not being managers because they hated how much paperwork and stuff they had to do. And they were like, this is not what I signed up for, right? They were like, "Mm -mm, I want to go back to just the coding part. I don't want to do all this busy work. And I think that part is lost on a lot of people. It's not all just coding. Yeah. I mean, it's often, I think, missing piece of what career paths are available to people, though, right? Some companies do have separate paths for individual contributors and managers, but many, it's one and the same. And so you're forced, if you want to advance, to start managing people. Yeah. I only know of one... I worked with when I was at Microsoft, one super high up engineer, one of the smartest people I ever met. He did not have anyone report to him. He was the only person I knew because he was like, no, 
I will never do it. Do not make me do it. I will quit this company. Yeah. Those are the like the only people I know who ever get to that point are like the engineers who everyone like whispers about. And I know we all wish we were that engineer, but I don't think most of us are. Yeah, like the distinguished engineer level of a company. Yeah, right? Yeah, that's really interesting. So obviously, like you think a lot about how people interact with the technology you're creating, right? And I can certainly imagine how that comes into handy in a DevRel role, for example. I'm curious, like what sort of like guiding principles you've developed for yourself about communicating with developers and doing DevRel the right way? Yeah, my first thing is always be honest and like always lay out the cards if you have them when you can. If something's difficult, be like, I know this is difficult. I agree with you and really empathize and sympathize with the person. I think you win a lot of trust that way with developers when you're just open instead of being, hey, good luck, bye. You know, when you give them that this is going to be hard, you are not going to like this. I know that. I want to improve it too. And I'm trying to. I think you get really far with people that way. So that's one of my first ones. I also, always say there's no dumb questions, which is true. The only dumb question is if you ask me the same thing five times, then I get annoyed. You can ask me like five or six times the same thing and I will happily keep answering it. But like once you cross that threshold, I'm done. So because you have to go in with that, they know nothing about whatever your software is with a truly blank slate, especially at a place like Gusto where it's payroll and payroll is so complicated and so many easy nooks and crannies and places to fail. You have to go in that, yes, maybe the PM of the partner of the customer knows about payroll, but that engineer is just being handed an API and saying like, code this. And they're like, oh no, now I have to understand payroll, right? So I try to go in with a, they probably don't know the answer and that's okay. Yeah, that's a good strategy. It's interesting though, right? Because I would imagine that the people who are using your software, right? Like Gusto Embedded, payroll software, no one's using that at a hackathon, right? Like no one's showing up to make like a fun grassroots project with it. They probably made some corporate strategic decision to use it and implement it. It's almost like different, like a lot of DevRel is marketing, right? It sounds like what you're focused on is not necessarily marketing, but more developer experience and partner onboarding. Yeah, and getting a partner through, right? Like what tools can I provide a developer so that they can succeed? right? And not get caught in caveats. I have great, I work with really great solution architects who really do the like day-to-day work. And I'm so grateful for them every day because I don't think I could keep up with the number of partners we have. But I like being able to take all that information and kind of go, okay, based off of all this information we have, right? And where everyone is failing, what can we do better, right? Like what is the thing that will help a partner build one day faster? right? Is it better error messages? Like are error messages not good enough? Or, you know, do we need a postman collection? What is the thing that can get them from zero to one faster, even if it, and try and get as much of the compliance in as possible, as easily as possible, right? Because they know none of it and Gusto knows all of it. How does that differ from more public facing DevRel that you've done, right? Yeah. Pinterest, I would imagine you were dealing with a much wider, more varied group of developers. Yeah. So Pinterest, it started off actually as a closed API because there was too much of a spam problem. Interesting. Um, You want to talk about like really, I'm happy and relieved, but also kind of miss 
the amount of thought I put into spam. I think it kept me up at night, like trying to figure out ways to outsmart spammers. I would say that if I had the drive of a spammer trying to spam Pinterest, I could be a billionaire. Because <laughs> it was impressive, the things they would do. They would bounce between all of our different partners and they would do different things. And then they would like email the partners and ask them to release their accounts and like just bounce. And they would try and do anything. And I had to try and outsmart them. It was like playing chess with someone who knew my next move every time. And so, right, that was really interesting. But the thing about a place like Pinterest is it's a lot easier of a concept, right? Right. You upload a picture to make a pin, right, onto a board. The objects that are involved are way smaller and way simpler. And so explaining it is a little bit easier because you also have a direct matching UI where you can go, if you hit this, you will see something, then upload. While with something like payroll or my role with like taxes, it's send the data and pray. Yeah. It worked. And then in two to four days, you'll see money taken out of a bank account, right? You just have to hope it works a little bit instead of seeing that instant, I did it correctly because now it has uploaded and now I see an image. Yeah. So very different sort of things. But I think at the core, it ends up being a question of like the experience that they want for their end users is you need to be thinking about the most. So who is your customer, your partner's user? is where you need to go of like, how would they interact with it? And then coaching your partners and customers into these are the best practices for these things based off of all the knowledge we have. I'm curious, how did spam fall under the remit of DevRel? Like I would assume that would be a totally different team's responsibility. You would think that, but at Pinterest, the API team was me and three other people. We ran the entire API So from the documentation to the endpoints and making them open to working with partners, it was just three or four of us and we did everything. So it was quite chaotic at times, but each one of us kind of chose a different area of partner that we focused on. So I personally focused a lot on like content partners. So scheduling content, my coworker Tino was the data expert, like any of the analytics people. And then Brendan, who kind of was like our fearless leader, was the all around. He could do the ads part and help with the ads team, but he could basically, he knew where all the bodies were hidden because he helped build it out the first time. And yeah, so each of us had a different area that we specialized in, but we could all overlap with each other. And that helped a lot with being able to manage however many people we had, right? And so, or like when a new endpoint we wanted to open up, like it was very clear who opened the endpoint. Right. And were you literally like the team that was adding those hooks into internal core like systems? Sure were. We were the internal team's probably like worst nightmare. So the product team used to always yell at us because right, spam was a problem. Yeah. And we would be like opening up the API or opening up the code and they're like, but spam. And I would say, if someone wants to spam Pinterest, they're going to do it no matter how. They're going to figure out a way to do it. It doesn't matter if it's through an API if it's through the website itself, they will figure out a way to spam Pinterest if they want to. Mm-hmm. So just because we're making it easier means maybe we should be better at catching it. Yeah. So when people think about like spam and moderation on these platforms, like certainly the type of content that's on Pinterest is quite a bit different than a Twitter or a Reddit or a Facebook. But yeah, 
I would imagine you had to deal with similar types of, you know, community moderation issues, right? Yeah. Like, has that changed your perspective at all on like the discourse around that stuff on other platforms? I mean, it was, it's a really hard problem to solve. It's really complicated, right? And I could have a billion dollars if I could spam. And it wasn't just like one type of spam. When the election was happening, they had an entire election like Tiger team built out to just deal with everything election related and trying to like keep that on law. The most common type of spam we saw was a lot of these drop shippers and people who would have links that would then give them, you know, codes plugged in into the cash and all of that. Like those were the most common ones. And spammers are smart. They start to catch on when they're not hitting the same numbers that they previously were. And so a lot of the work that was done around spam was really had to be kept super secret and super locked down because like if even a whisper of it came out, it would take everything down. I also know that a lot of these different companies actually talk with each other about how to deal with spam, which I think is really good for something like this. But yeah, it definitely gives me some respect. But I think places like Twitter where I'm being spammed every day for some NFT or currently on Instagram, my likes, bots keep liking my stories. Like that's an easy shutdown. That's like, just don't give them access after they like X number, or if they don't follow the person, they can't like it for X amount of time. But when you do that, the spammers will figure it out. I always thought, I think it was Facebook has a really interesting way to deal with it, which is their rate limit changes. And they don't give out the full formula of how they calculate your rate limit for the day. And it has to do with like number of active users and all these different things. And so each day your rate limit might be a little bit different. And that supposedly helps deal with spam. That's really clever. I didn't even know that. I learned way too much about it. But again, taking it full circle, I think the reason why I was willing to learn so much about it, even if I was building it, was because I learned to research and I learned to like dive fully into a topic, even if it was something dull, like spam, right? I always say I can find interest in anything. Just give me enough time with it. And I can probably find something that fascinates me about it. That's great. That's really, really cool. Going back a little bit, when we were doing some prep, you mentioned to me that you used to go to hackathons when you were a student. Obviously, that's our world. That's what I think about every day. Now that you're a professional, what do you think of hackathons? Obviously, it's a very different experience as a student. Yeah. I only did a few hackathons because my college didn't hold any. And we like never had any on our campus or anything. But I did do a few when I studied abroad. And I thought it was a really great way to build relationships with companies, one, as like someone who went to a small school that like most companies didn't even look at. I think it helped with that. But I also think it helped with camaraderie with your fellow students in a way that most things don't. I mean, yes, you can do a project together, but when you're like on your 23rd hour without sleep and like trying to get something done in 24 hours and you're just like pushing it out, you form a connection that like can't really be beat of like, do you remember that time where we were like, so tired that we just coded up the weirdest thing and just went good luck, right? Like, and nothing made sense anymore. And I'm sure if that code still exists, it is sloppy, and probably not even functional, because I bet probably most of the stuff we put into it was just like, fake of like, press the button, and then it works. I think that was probably one of the most powerful parts. I also, as someone who my joy in DevRel is watching how different people use an API. I always liked seeing what other people would come up with and seeing the creativity that came out of it. Because 
that's really, I think, the coolest part. One software, you can end up with 100 different things, right? Yeah. Have you gotten to go to any hackathons in a DevRel capacity? I have not. I've always been on these weird teams that are very much like enterprise or like weird. Maybe one day the Pinterest API will go back on to being in a hackathon, but I have not gotten to do that. That was something I always wanted to do. Yeah. I'm sure and maybe someday in the future, someone will want to integrate payroll into a hackathon. You never know. Things. Yeah, you never know. Weirder things have happened. Right? Um, but yeah, like it's the way that you were describing seeing how people interact with your tech. That was always one of my favorite things when I was repping Twilio at hackathons. Mm -hmm. It's like I had a certain picture in my head of what you might want to do with this. And every person there had a totally different idea. And you ended up with use cases that were like way more creative than anything I could have come up with. That's honestly, that was my favorite part about the Pinterest API was the different ideas. One of the first projects I worked on on Pinterest was with the Met Museum. And putting their entire public collection, all their like open source collection onto Pinterest, because there was this idea by an internal stakeholder that like, if you put really good content onto Pinterest, that is like really well labeled and all this stuff, like it will do better than everything else. And you get high quality content, et cetera, et cetera. And it kind of held true. But the really interesting part was the most popular pieces were from the cloisters. So it was like the Christian crosses were the most popular and like it was a very weird area that I was and it was that and a lot of fashion stuff which makes sense but it did better than the average like fashion dress because Mm. of how it was labeled and the high quality of the picture and all of that stuff that's really cool I mean the cloisters is a beautiful museum too I would not have guessed that that would be the most popular part of it right that was the most popular pieces or the cloister pieces. That's cool. That's really interesting. So kind of zooming out a little bit. Yeah. I find the type of DevRel that you've been in really unique. Like a lot of the people I talk to, as I said, are more in the marketing side of DevRel. I'm curious, what are some of the misconceptions about developer relations that you've observed being in this really specific partner capacity? Yeah, I think DevRel is more than just writing documentation. I think that's a very common misconception that we are pure technical writers. I can write a good technical document, but I do not do better than a technical writer. And I give a lot of credit to technical writers for what they do. I also think that often DevRel, it depends, but they're often seen as not the most technical. A lot of the times, like you like scapegoated and like, why are you a DevRel? Like, are you basically a glorified PM? And it's like, well, I can project manage something, but no, I can also code you up a tool or whatever and build it out. And like, I understand these super technical concepts. And then they all think we're all extroverts. I think most of us have a little bit of extroversion in us, but I think most of us are introverts, to be completely honest. Why why do you say that? Because I think that a lot of the people who end up in DevRel, they may have like extrovert tendencies, but I think they do it because they care. Like, that's why they're okay. They like to teach and they like to do those parts of it. And to do that, you have to be okay in a crowd, be okay on a podcast, be okay doing these different things. But like at the end of the day, they're like, oh, I'm exhausted. You know, at the end of the day, they're like, let me turn everything off and I don't want to talk to a single soul. Yeah. I mean, I think I've known both types. Like I've known some incredibly successful DevRel people that don't recharge by doing that part of their job. It's almost like just part of the job, but not the thing that they get the joy out of. It's, And I've known people where it's like, 
all they want is to be in front of a crowd, you know, like they, they I, love it. I give credit to the DevRel people who like enter every single conference, have a talk for everything. I'm like, I have maybe two talks up my sleeve and they're very specific to fintech and like very niche. And don't ask me to go to anything outside of that because I probably, I wouldn't even know what to say. I'd be like, yeah. you want to talk about fintech? Yeah. I mean, I think it's nice to know at least that you don't have to be of a particular style or type to succeed in DevRel. Yeah. Certainly, that is the external perception. I mean, you can look at some of the top people who people think of, like when you say like DevRel, like Chloe Condon came from, shout out to Chloe, we are very good friends. I love her more than anything. You also have Christina Warren, Mm -hmm. who came from journalism, right? And then you have people like me who came from maybe a software side. You went right into it. You have all these different paths that people end up to get to DevRel. And I think that's kind of what's beautiful about it is all those people are technical to some degree. They might not all have, I don't expect, and I deeply apologize if Chloe or Christina are listening to this. I don't think they're going to build the next big app. They might, if they do, I'll happily invest in it if they'll have me. But, you know, they are really good at what they do. Yeah. I mean, counterpoint to that. Yeah. I don't think, the best engineers are going to build the next big app. I actually think that the people who start companies have a much more similar profile to DevRel than your average engineer. I will give you that one then. So I don't think they'll code. How about this? I don't think they'll code the next big thing. Right. Yeah. But I think they could definitely create the next big thing. I just don't think they'll be the ones coding it. And that is not a fault. I think that is a strength for them. There are days where I wish I didn't think technically. Sometimes I feel like engineers are like so solution oriented. We don't always think about the problem. Yep. Like I often just want to go into a meeting and just give solutions to things. And I have to like pause and be like, we are not fixing. We're trying to figure out root cause. We don't need to protect the ship right now and fill all the holes. Like let's first figure out what's going on. And that's a whole different strength. Yeah, I would agree with that. Really interesting. So I'm curious in that type of work, right? When you're doing this really, I would say like in-depth analysis, what are some of the like ways that you actually draw conclusions, right? Because I think in DevRel, it's a meta solution, right? You are solving a problem for other people who are solving problems for people. So how do you actually like interpret that? Yeah, I think... Right. That goes back to that, like outside in thinking, I think helps a lot with that. But I also think the more you can sometimes sectionalize things, right? Pinterest, we had the content partners, the this partner, the that partners, and kind of having personas that you maybe were like, okay, if you have a vertical SaaS partner, what are their top things that they're going to want or need is? And then going about it that way. And then you start the solutionizing and figuring out, you can go like, does this fit, you know, X partners like requirement and right. And then from there, I mean, because everyone loves numbers and everyone loves money, you can Mm -hmm. say, okay, from that, how many people will be impacted and how much revenue or how much this will then happen because of it. I mean, I know in DevRel, we don't usually care about revenue, but it's a good thing if revenue can be improved with it. And if not, like how many developers will get improved, et cetera. I think a lot of DevRel is also just experimenting more than most other roles. It's like, I don't know, let's try it. Let's see what happens. If it fails, we can be like, I'm so sorry. And kind of like revert, you know? And that goes back to the being truthful, right? Being like, we tried something, it didn't work. We're so sorry. We'll fix it for you. 
I think that's the other strength. And it's just like, try something like, don't just sit there and keep guessing and like yeah. not doing just pick something and go. Yeah. I mean, almost what you're talking about though, is product management and customer research more than what I think most people would see as traditional DevRel. Yeah. I mean, well, because I'm not doing always the marketing. So the problem with the role that I have and my last role is all of my partners and customers are competitors. They don't want to talk to each other. They have zero desire. I mean, in my last role, I literally asked them if they would be open to an open Slack channel. And they all said, absolutely not. They don't want to talk to each other. They are so like, no way. I just want to be in my own little world. I don't want to know what, and like, but they're like, but tell me what they're doing, which is the wild part. They're like, tell me what so-and-so is up to, or like, don't work with so-and-so. And we're like, mm-hmm. you can't tell us who to work with. And so the community part, I don't get to build as much. So I have to just help developers as a whole and have them all be like, oh, Gus feels really great, right? Like at my last company, our head of product, Daniel, used to always, for better or worse, be the person they say when you ask, if you ask like any developer right now, who has the best API, they're going to go like Stripe, Plaid, almost without a doubt. Those are the two things that are going to come out of their mouth. And my last head of product said, we want to be in that list, right? And part of why they're in that list is because of their usability, not just their community. Their community helped build their usability, but what if you did it the other way around? Yeah. Hard to build a community around something that's not very usable. Right. So why don't you start? I always say like, you can talk the talk, but if you can't walk the walk, don't even start talking. We shouldn't say, oh, we're the best if we really know we're not the best because then someone's going to come up and be like, <laughs> like I always tell the marketing team, they like always want to sell to developers. And I'm like, developers can smell bullshit from like a mile away. The second you try and sell to a developer, they're like, bye, I'm leaving. They're like, I don't even want to talk to you. I have no desire. You are trying to get money from me. Goodbye. They're like, I will figure out another way to do this. So that's the other way about it is don't sell to them. Just prove you're the best. Yeah. Developers will sometimes go to extreme lengths to avoid paying for something. Exactly. They will figure out any way to not pay for something. Yeah. Sometimes it's to their detriment, but yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. But I give them credit for like doing it. It's very ingenious. The thing that developers can come up with when they're really trying to pinch pennies. Yeah. Hey, I mean, a lot of creative stuff comes out of that. I think one of the interesting things about the way that you're thinking about DevRel and the part of it that you're in is it sounds like the amount of focus you're allowed to have. So many DevRel teams struggle to justify their existence and to justify some kind of ROI. But the teams that you're on here, like the ROI is a core product delivery, you know, like yeah. there, there's nothing else. Right. Well, I think though with Gusto Embedded and even a little bit of Pinterest, it's, well, Pinterest, we were everything. So that was very different. But like, if you just take the DevRel part that we were doing, you know, there are solutions architects, there are implementation managers, there are all these other people, right? And they all see the friction and they all verbalize it too. But I view it as this overarching, like, it's not just the developers who are implementing that I want to help. I want to help the people who are pre-sale. I want to help the people that like, once they're live, like what's going to happen with them, right? If tomorrow everything went down, what would happen? It's a lot of that very broad thinking. And I think that's 
very hard to justify as well because people are like, but we don't need it right now. And it's, you say that, but you wait six months. And then what I'm saying is going to be true. And I think all DevRel people go through that. I don't think I definitely experienced it. I don't think that's a unique feeling. I think it's just in what way do you experience it, right? Where do you experience it? Is it you didn't get enough developers on and like people will use it if you just give us money, right? Or is it, you know, if we can just make them build faster, then we can get to the end point, right? The problem with DevRel is it is, I always said that the biggest startup will be the one that can measure DevRel. If you can measure DevRel, you will be the most successful entrepreneur in the world because there's no right way to measure DevRel. It all, there's too many factors. Yeah, I think you might be right. I mean, I don't know. When I worked as a full-time developer evangelist, it was 2011, 2012, and people were having the exact same conversation and no one's figured it out yet, you know? And there were DevRel people way before my time too. And right. yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a field that's kind of constantly reinventing itself, but also doing a lot of the same things on sort of this like gut feel that it's the right thing to do. Yeah, I also believe, and I said this to my coworkers, that like the sickest part about DevRel is we care mm-hmm. like too much. We get so invested in our developers and our partners and our customers that when things don't get work out, it hurts. And like I said to someone, they're like, man, I'm so frustrated. I go, and the worst part is it hurts. That's how you know you're like a real DevRel. If at the end of the day, you're like, this hurts how much difficulty this is causing someone. If that is the emotion you have, like to anyone listening and you are an engineer or anything, and you're like, you hate when someone is struggling, you're like, man, that like hurts my soul. Go into DevRel because we're all in there together already. I love that. That's a really good uh, summary of our whole conversation. Right? DevRel Um, is about the pain in the end. And empathy. And empathy. I guess the empathy counts too. A little bit. A little bit. Um, So the question I always like to end on, because I'm always curious to hear what people Mm -hmm. think of this, but who in the world that you've never met would you love to just like take to lunch and pick their brain? Could be in DevRel, could be in tech, could be something else entirely. Yeah, I have two. I spent the day thinking about it when you sent me this question. I was like, oh gosh, I've never met Mary Thingval. I think that's like an easy answer. I think she's great. I would love to just pick her brain and sit in front of her for a while. And literally other, wrote the book on DevRel. Literally wrote the book. I think I have it like under my desk or something. Like literally wrote the book on DevRel. When you say like DevRel, people go, oh, Mary. And you're like, yeah, Mary. And then the other person is Andy Piper, hmm. who was the like head of API at Twitter. Because the type of DevRel that I've often done is taking a product and then making an API from it. And that is such an interesting and different way of building an API than most DevRel people are used to. And I think there's just a lot of learnings from him and his experience of taking Twitter and then making a functioning API from it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is great. I really appreciate everything you had to share. This is like kind of an interesting, like philosophical bent to this conversation. But thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. If people want to find your work or your online presence, where should they go? I am Julie Hubs, H-U-B-S, on literally everything. Pick a social media, whatever. If you pick Instagram, you can see my photography because you've got to have other interests. But I'm basically everywhere, Julie Hubs. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Julie. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you all enjoyed it. 
like and subscribe. That's what we're supposed to say to end these. But happy hacking, everyone. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review, and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking!